Father God, thank you for this moment that we can be here and be in your presence. Thank you that it is your name that we seek to magnify. God, we are weak vessels who mess it up every which way possible. But God, I ask you to give us your strength, your ability to give you the worship that you alone deserve this morning. For it's in Jesus' good and precious and powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen. I know it's going to be weird, but please have a seat. It's going to be weird because you're in a weird seat, right? No, no, no. <laughs> Jeff Hook has stuck with it. Um, so, so this morning, let me, let me say this. It's a little dark in here. It's going to get bright. Or, um, we're going to show a video in a second. Um, first, okay, let me stop. If you're a guest with us, you have no clue what we're talking about. So welcome. We're glad to have you this morning. If you all don't mind, guests and regular attenders and members alike, if you would reach in the seat back in front of you, grab your connection card and just fill that out. We're going to receive our offering later in the service this morning. I gave most of you a heads up that today was going to be a, a little different flow-wise, and there's some reasons for that, and you'll see here in a bit. Um, but, but, but this morning for you homebodies, um, you recognize the fact that uh, our arrangement's a little different this morning, and so some of you have some difficulty finding your place we love you. You're going to be okay. We're going to surround you with our, our, our gracious hands. Chris Sturdivant, there you are, man. It took me, I would never have found you. There is no way. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to be honest with you. This week, as, as uh, we were talking, we've been talking about this for months. Um, reasons for doing this, there's a myriad of them. One of the basic ones is this. When this building was first designed, this was the seating arrangement that was written into the blueprints for the sound system. For some reason, we just never did it. And so we're, we're trying this. Could it tweak? I know it's going to give you heart palpitations. We're probably going to tweak and change this. Now, I wanted to make light of it and have a great time with it and be really humorous about it. I know for some of you, it, it, it's serious. And so I, I'm, I want to be careful. Um, but what I was trying to do is find these. I mean, they have videos about everything out there now. So I thought for sure I'd be able to find a video that we could play in church that would be like, oh, yeah, how important the pew is or the chair is. And I couldn't find one because evidently it hits a little too close to home. <laughs> so everybody fears to mess with that. But, but in searching, I found this. And quite honestly, it's hilarious. And I am grateful and thankful this is not our church. You heard that, right? This is not Frank being passive-aggressive. I'm not good at the passive-aggressive thing. I'm just straight-up hardcore-aggressive, okay? There's no passivity in me at all. There's no quietness in me either. I know that surprises you. But I found this video. It was too funny not to play, so it just gives us a little light brevity. So here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fire this video up there, back there, tech team. Here we go. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I don't know who sets the worship center temperature, but why does it have to be so cold? Why do you have to be so right? Heated chairs are now being installed. This one wants a small church, but I'm afraid if it's too small, they're gonna make me volunteer like crazy. And I don't stack chairs, do I? Makes total sense. Join now and we'll let you decide the size of our church. We're millennials. And we want a church that... Say no more. Any requests you have will be granted immediately. Parking is horrible. It takes me almost six minutes to get from my car to the building. Ugh. It's going to take me six seconds to tell you a valet service is on the way. My pastor's preaching. It's all over the map. I say, oh, I don't know. Stick with the books of the Bible. We should be only exegetical. Okay. Next week, we start John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll even start pronouncing that word the way you said it. 
Hey, I'd like this sermon to be no longer than 30 minutes. How does 15 minutes sound? Hey, anybody willing to go to 15 should be willing to go to 10. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain. But from now on, five-minute sermons it is. <laughs> now you're talking. Me Church, where it's all about you. Told you it was too good to pass up. And there's no chance. 15 minutes is a joke. So, <laughs> now I, I am I'm thankful that's not our church. I am thankful that we have a, a body of believers here who are, are, are most focused on the glory of God and make, making much of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for you that I have the opportunity to stand up here and preach the word of God to you and do it without fear that I may step on somebody's toes because I'm confident that God will step on somebody's toes. It's not up to me to do that. I'm thankful that, that as we, we mix things up, and even this morning's flow of service, there's a reason why we change. Not all change is bad. Think pregnancy. <laughs> right? Not all change is bad. Change becomes this beautiful thing for each of us, and, and, and we all need to experience it and move through it, through it well. So sometimes we will change things in here because um, it, it's driven by the text, and that's what you're going to find this morning as we, as we look at the text. Sometimes we will change things because if we're not careful, the things that we hold so close have actually become our idols. And so sometimes we do change things to keep all of you from being robots, we do have a tendency to do that. We find it, we come, we sit, we pew, all right, then I'm out. And, and so, you know, by doing this, if nothing else, you're talking and meeting people that you might not have otherwise. The chair thing, that's just insignificant. Um, like I said, I do think in the next few weeks, we're going to keep trying things that work to make sure it works. So there'll be some tweaks some modifications, but in everything, we will still preach the gospel. In everything, we'll still magnify Jesus We'll still proclaim that God is holy and he is to be worshiped with everything that we have, even if it means we need to sit someplace different, right? That's what matters most. All right, that's the uncomfortable part. Get to 2 Chronicles 20, please. This is the comfortable part. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we're going to talk about a king whose name you may be familiar from, Batman. It's Jehoshaphat. And there was a Batman episode where Batman said, jump, oh, sorry, it was Robin that said it, jumping Jehoshaphat, Batman. Um, evidently, Jehoshaphat jumps. I didn't see that in the story, but we'll see if we can find it. King Jehoshaphat is a king who uh, did some good things and did some bad things. It seems to be a, a theme, doesn't it? One of the, the, the positive comments made about Jehoshaphat uh, is that he uh, brought his people, chapter 19 tells us, he brought his people back to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And there was a period of revival that had broken out in chapter 19. You end chapter 19, there's a, a feeling of peace and of rest, of comfort. Everything's going well. And suddenly, they change the chairs. Um, suddenly, chapter 20, verse 1, you get this horrible feeling of unrest that settles in. Chapter 20, verse 1, after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, together with some of the Munites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, there's this vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom that has come to fight against you. And, and they're already in Hazan Tamar, that is, and Gedi. So let me, let me stop there, kind of set the context. So, so everything's going wonderful for King Jehoshaphat. 
And all of a sudden, his people come to him and say, there is this huge army that is about to come at us. And they're from, just to kind of put it in our context, they're from Towson, Maryland, about 40, 40 miles from here or so, give or take. And that's where they're from. Now, for us, if somebody came in the room and said, uh, uh, there's an army that is moving towards us and they're already in Towson, that would freak us out. 40 miles isn't that far when it comes to modern weaponry. But back then, 40 miles, that was a couple days away. They, they had to walk. It was going to take those big armies a little while to get to Jehoshaphat. They're like, so, so these people are coming from 40 miles. And Jehoshaphat, upon hearing that, had to have thought, okay, you've got a little time. And he said, oh, and by the way, they're already at Woodbridge, Maryland. It's about 15 miles from here. He doesn't have a lot of time. That's like your kids coming home from school and saying, hey, you okay if I uh, have some friends over tonight? Yeah, good, they're outside. Okay, it changes things a little. So Jehoshaphat is facing that type of situation. Look at verse three. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah who gathered to seek the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. I want you to see something that's really important. King Jehoshaphat's first reaction to hearing about these huge armies that were going to come at him was fear. He was terrified. He was afraid. He was, his insides were turning inside out. His first reaction was absolute alarm and terror at the fact that this army was coming. So let me, let me just point this out. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is a natural emotion that God has given you for your own protection at times. If you don't fear that cliff, you may do something stupid. If you don't fear that lion, you may do something stupid. And so the fear that wells up in him isn't exactly a bad thing. What matters most isn't what he reacts, it's what he does with that fear. And what happens right here is it's amazing. It says, he was afraid and he resolved to seek the Lord. I like the original, if you were to translate this uh, originally out of the Hebrew, if you were to translate it literally, it would say, he was afraid, and then he gave his face to God. How about you? When things come out you, when things mount up against you, when you are terrified, is your first reaction to that emotion of fear to give your face to God? Or like King Asa, which we talked about, is it to run to your own logic and wisdom? Here we find that Jehoshaphat was like his great, great, great granddaddy David, who wrote in Psalm 56 3, When I am afraid, I'm going to trust you. So Jehoshaphat goes on, look at verse 5. He, he stands in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, he's in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard, and, and he prays one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. I love this prayer. And he begins his prayer by celebrating what he knows. Look at this. Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms, over all the nations? Power and might, they're in your hand. Nobody can stand against you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and, and, and who gave it? forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? See, they've lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress and you will hear and you will deliver. 
just right there. I mean, uh, so, so the difficulty with this passage is there's, there's at least five solid um, messages, sermons that are wrapped up in here. And that's one of them right there. You've, you've got Jehoshaphat surrounded by an enemy. And the first thing he does is he gives his face to God and he celebrates what he knows. He says, God, are you not the God of our ancestors? Aren't you the, the God of our history? The God who, 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 who took care of, of Noah and made the promise to Noah to, to never destroy the world with a flood again? Aren't you the God who called Abraham out of his country and provided for him along the way and then made that promise to him that you would bless all nations through him and you would give him a seed as numerous as the stars? Aren't you the God of Moses who came to Egypt to rescue us from enslavement and then through Moses led us through the wilderness and provided for us in your miraculous way time and time again? Aren't you the God of Joshua who led us into the promised land and and gave us everything you had promised to give us at that time? Aren't you the God of David who promised that there would forever be a king from his line? You're the God of history. You've been faithful to us in the past. Aren't you the God in heaven? You're above all things. You are pure. You are holy. You're the God over, over all of the nations, all of the kingdoms, all of the nations. That, that means, it, it, that's where um, Proverbs 21 talks about it. The heart of the king is in the hand of God and he turns it wherever he wants. And you see, these nations that are coming against us may think that they have us pinned down, but they're nothing in front of you. Aren't you the God of all power and no one can stand against you you do what you want this is our god we will cry out to you and you will hear us and you will deliver us our god is powerful our god is sovereign our god is strong and he's proven all of that in the past and that's how jehoshaphat starts his prayer not a bad opening is it then he continues And he moves on to the things that he doesn't know. Verse 10, Now here before us are the Ammonites, the Munites, the inhabitants of Mount Seir. God, you didn't let Israel invade them when we came out of the land of Egypt. Instead, we turned away from them and we didn't even destroy them. And look how they repay us. By coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? We are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do. And we look to you. Is there a more powerful line in Scripture than that? We have no clue what to do. But our eyes are locked onto you. God, we we don't know why this is happening. We were good to them when we left Egypt. We don't know what your plans are. Are you planning on judging them? We, we don't know how to stop them. We are powerless compared to this people. We don't have any idea what to do, but our eyes are locked onto you for the answer. When that's your prayer, and that's your position before God, he responds. In this case, he responds through his prophet Jehaziel. Look at, look at verse uh, 15. Jehaziel stands as God had spoken to him 
He said, listen carefully, all Judah and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. This is God's response to Jehoshaphat's prayer, where he confessed the things that he knew and he declared the things he didn't know. He says, okay, so so this is what I want you to hear from God. This is what he said. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number that's waiting for you. For the battle isn't yours, it's God's. Tomorrow... You go down against them. You'll see them coming up the ascent of Ziz, and you'll find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. You you don't have to fight this battle. No, position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He's with you. Judah, Jerusalem, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Tomorrow go out and face them because the Lord is with you. No more fear, no more discouragement. God says, this is my battle I got this. If this was your battle, you'd be in trouble. But this is my battle. I've got this. So what I want you to do is I want you to get to your place. I want you to stand there. I want you to watch. I want you to see what I'm going to do for you because God is with you as you go. That statement, for the Lord is with you, is far more than just a theological statement that we should jot down in our notes. That statement is a reminder of the strength we have because of God's precious promise to us to never leave us, to never forsake us, but to go with us. So what enemy is piling up in front of you? What difficulties mounting before you? After God responds to them, and he promises his strength for the moment. <laughs> see, like I said, there's two sermons right there. I, w- I want you to see this, though. I want you to see how the people respond. Look at verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat knelt low with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. Then the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting loudly. Do you see what they did? When, when, when they stood before God and fell before him and cried out to him, we have no idea what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then God answers their prayer and says, I am with you. This is my battle, not yours. You go down, you stand still, you watch. I'll win this victory and you just need to know that I'm with you. And when they hear that, their response is to worship God, his face to the ground to worship him. The first aspect of it was a picture of reverence, of gravity, When you hear the voice of God, should you ever hear the voice of God, the right response is the response of John in the book of Revelation. He fell down as though he was dead. You don't stand before the voice of the one who created everything. You don't stand before the one who breathes stars into existence. So they fell on their face before God because they understood the very holiness of God. See, what we need to get from this this morning is an understanding of what worship looks like for real. I think sometimes in our heads we have, so so I'll be honest with you, so for me, one of the greatest moments last week um, was at the end of the service being able to sing What a Wonderful Name into Agnes Day. Not because it made me feel good, but because I love both of those songs and they picture the God who I worship so well. The problem was I found myself worshiping the worship at a moment. I found myself like, oh, goosebumps, this is awesome. 
And the reality is many of us come to worship thinking that's what worship is supposed to look like. I'm supposed to feel like this, right? I'm supposed to feel good about worship and so I can just let it rip. And the reality is when you examine worship throughout the Old Testament in particular, there was no feel-good goosebumps. So, so can, I, can, I, can I lay something out for you real quick? Abraham, been waiting for that son Isaac for oh so long. And God says, "Here's your, he has the bouncing baby boy. I mean, and he names him Laughter, Isaac Laughter. And there, it had to be this moment where it's like, see, God came through in his promise. And then that, that crazy day when God spoke to Abraham and said, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, and take him and sacrifice him. And Abraham was like, I'm obeying, which I can't comprehend. Um, if that disqualifies me for ministry, so be it. If I'm told to sacrifice one of my children in order to honor God, I have no idea how I'd be able to do that. In fact, I don't think I would. But Abraham, a picture of faith, marches up the mountain and at one point stops and looks at the servants and says, you guys stay here. I'm going to take the boy and we're going to go up to the top of the mountain. You know what he says? We're going to worship. What does Abraham get out of that sacrifice? Goosebumps? No, he gets a dead son. but he knows God's the one who receives the glory. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 that as Abraham considered that moment, he thought that the answer, he, you know how we all do that, we play around with how, how God's gonna come through. And in his mind, he had played it around, like, I got it, I'm gonna sacrifice him, and then God's gonna raise him from the dead. And so he was going, see, see, worship is supposed to be marked not by goosebump feelings. Worship is supposed to be marked to a degree with gravity. When you think about the story in 2 Samuel chapter six, the, the Ark of the Covenant, is, is, is just been returned by the Philistines uh, because every time they touched it, something horrible happened. And so David decides to lead his people. We want the Ark of the Covenant back home, so let's go get it. And so, so they run back and they get it, and it's, it's a fascinating story in chapter six. There's two men uh, who are leading the Ark um, back home. Their names are Uzzah and Ahio. And it talks about coming out of Abinadab's house and Ohio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house, as they were leaving Abinadab's house, they were dancing before the Lord with the kinds of fur instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. I mean, it was a party. And they're walking out with the ark of the Lord and they're heading back to home and yet they're walking over this threshing floor and the, 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 the ark was sitting on top of um, the oxen were pulling the cart. The oxen stumble I don't know how an oxen stumbles. I'm not sure what that looks like. But the oxen stumbles. The, the cart gets a little weebly-wobbly. The ark begins to fall. And Uzzah, with the greatest of intentions, reaches up to steady it so it doesn't fall off the cart. And as soon as he touches, it says God was displeased with him. And he <laughs> struck him dead. And David was baffled. Why would God do such a thing? We're trying to bring the ark home. Why would God do that? Because God is holy, and God had prescribed how the ark was supposed to be moved. They hadn't followed God's prescription. They were doing things the way that they thought they should do it. And as you look at that story, what you realize is that their worship, although it was well-intended, didn't follow after what God had called them to. Our approach to God and worship needs to be marked with gravity. It needs to be marked by reverence. We, we need to approach God understanding that he is holy and we are not. 
And so when Jehoshaphat heard from God that this was God's battle and he was going to take care of it, he fell with his face to the ground and he worshipped him, the idea of it being just solemn. Heart poured out, God, we don't deserve you hearing us. That needs to be part of our worship. But then it continues. And the Levites, they stood up to praise the Lord, God of Israel, and they shouted loudly. See, our worship isn't just supposed to be marked by reverence. It's also supposed to be marked by celebration. See, in this moment, these people stood with a loud voice, not like a, yay, God. I mean, this was full-throated, big, mega, great, large, top-of-the-lung, celebrating the relationship they have with God, a celebration of the promises that God had, had given to them. And so, so going back to that same story of David, you remember after they had left the ark in Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom started receiving all these great blessings from God, and David's like, oh, we need to get that ark back home. But this time, David went with his men, and they followed God's prescription for moving the ark. They loaded it up, and I love this part. It says they took six steps and stopped and sacrificed a number of animals in order to appease the holiness of God to make sure they were doing it right. And then the rest of the way home, many of you may not be familiar with this uh, passage unless um, you're familiar with um, Footloose. (laughs) The rest of the way home, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts at the sound of the ram's horn. The ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, and Saul's daughter Michael, who is also David's wife, looked down from the window she was in, and she saw King David leaping and and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark back, and they set it in its place. After they had set it in its place, David finished the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, and then he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave them food to go home and celebrate and bless their homes with. And all the people went home. And David went home to bless his household. And Saul's daughter, Michael, came out to meet him and said this. I'm assuming tone here. How the king of Israel honored himself today. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls and of his subjects like a, like a vulgar person would expose himself. And David replied to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me over your dad and his whole family. (laughs) I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and I will humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. There's this moment that happens where David is celebrating the presence of God and his worship is marked by by great celebration and wonderful enthusiasm and Michael is not like it at all and God actually judges Michael for her attitude towards David. The greatest um, judgment in the Old Testament to women would be to be called barren. So, So what does that tell us about about our worship. Man, we need to dance more. And I don't mean like, I practice that all week, just so you know. Because my wife doesn't like the one that I normally do. (laughs) We need to dance more. Hey, just so you know, dancing wasn't line dancing back here with David and with these people. You want to know what a biblical view of dancing was? 
The biblical view of dancing and worship is exactly what you saw when the horn sounded at the end of the Capitol Stanley Cup game. That was dancing! Without the skates. But that was dancing! There were things flying in the air. There were men diving on top of each other, slobbering on each other, snot everywhere, tears everywhere. That's biblical dancing! Now, what they did afterwards was, was biblical sin. We'll talk about that some other time, but... But that was all summer, wasn't it? But, but, but that moment, that was it. That was it. That's what celebration is supposed to look like. And I'm going to tell you right now, I dance every week up here. I do. I mean, this, this is what this, this is going to get. I dance. Do you? Do you? Ah, it makes me uncomfortable to move. It makes me uncomfortable to clap. Now, if you can't clap in rhythm, you got an excuse. <laughs> my kids make fun of me because I can clap as long as I'm not singing at the same time. Once I start singing, it's like, oh, no! <laughs> but, 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 but it makes me so un- uncomfortable. I'm not sure. What, 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 what part of worship are you uncomfortable with? Are you uncomfortable with the quiet gravity of worship? The reverent worship? Are you uncomfortable with the celebration aspect of worship? And let me, let me hit this celebration. While, while we're talking about it, let me hit this real quick. Are you, are you uncomfortable with, with, well, here, let me see if I can remember all of them. Stand. Don't. I'm, that's not a command. Just, sorry. Standing. Singing. Praying. Playing instruments. Shouting. Dancing. Clapping. Kneeling. Bowing. You uncomfortable with any of those in, in worship? Do you know that every single one of those, and probably more, I'm sure I missed some, are commanded in Scripture for you to do? So which one won't you do? It's not a cultural expectation, folks. It's a command from the God we worship. There's this picture of dignified and undignified worship. And I mean undignified, not like in the, wow, they are, ooh, I mean, man, I don't care what you think. And these people had both. They had the very dignified reverent worship and they had the very undignified celebratory worship. But, but, but here's the crazy part. Those are all free. That's not even the sermon. Uh, this, this is the sermon. <laughs> More important than how they worshiped is when they worshiped. What changed about their circumstances? Absolutely nothing. Those armies were still coming. They were still knocking on the door. The problem is for many of us, too many times, we wait until something good happens. Our worship is determined on how we feel. Our worship is determined if I'm in a good mood, if, 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 if my health is good, if my relationships are good. I got the promotion if the car started this morning. Man, if all those things are true, then I'm in. I'm going to worship with vim and vigor. I'm all, I'm all in. But that is not what we see in this passage, and that is not what our worship is supposed to look like. Our worship isn't motivated by something good. It's motivated by knowing someone who is good. See, what their worship was motivated by had nothing to do with their circumstances. It had to do with the fact that, that God himself revealed himself to them and said, I am here. And even before he answers their prayer, they fall on their face and they celebrate. 
Know this, he has promised you, you will never be alone. You will never be abandoned. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has promised you life. And even if life right now is hard, even if life right now is filled with the constant effects of sin in this world, he who promised is faithful. Our worship is not driven by a life free of struggles. He never promised us a life free of struggles. He never promised a life free of of, of health issues or hurt or heartache. He promised to walk with you, even carry you through those things. So are you worshiping him with, with enthusiasm, with celebration, knowing his promises are as good as done? Are you worshiping him with reverence, knowing he's holy? Yeah. Let's worship together.